If you would, take out your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It comes from chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 24. We'll be reading all of Acts chapter 24. This is God's Word. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. and They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, both, excuse me, but some Jews from Asia they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with this respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about the righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the, time, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. We continue this morning our exposition in the book of Acts. Um, our subject this morning is the way, the way, and how declaring the one who is the way has a, a twofold effect. One is the softening and sealing of souls unto eternal life, and the second is solidification of souls in their hardened unbelief toward the one who is the way. That's the prominent feature um, in the text um, that we'll highlight this morning. Remember, this is a narrative. Um, we're covering a lot of ground, so there'll be a number of theological points and application um, along the way. And because you are indeed good expository listeners, I trust that uh, you'll be able to follow the flow this morning. Amen? Amen. So let's ask the Lord for his help, and we'll proceed to look at the text together. Lord God, please, we pray. 
Holy Spirit, by your presence, I'm illumined to us the glorious truths within your word. Build us up in the faith this day. You may be more greatly glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Um, last week we were reminded how God's um, sovereign will is worked out um, by way of his providence. That is, that the Lord is never dependent upon his own miracles in order to work out his preordained will in time and space. As the gospel expanded into the first century, um, you begin to see fewer and fewer signs, wonders, and miracles. A, a miracle, of course, is when God interrupts the natural war, uh, world to accomplish his decreed will. Providence is God using circumstances within the natural world to carry out that preordained will. You know, routing and, and rerouting individuals, um, shifting scenes in characters in order that his purposes come to pass. Back in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord Jesus Christ um, converted the apostle Paul that is, Saul of Tarsus, by way of his providence, he sent one Ananias. He said, go to the street called Straight, for there's a man praying there. It's Saul. I must show him how many things he must, what? Suffer for my namesake. And he will bear witness of me before Gentiles and before Israelites and before kings. We've seen him testify. We've witnessed the man suffer, and having preached throughout Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia, um, Paul, in the spirit, was shown that, that he must testify of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and then Rome. While suffering in Jerusalem, um, the Lord himself stood by the apostle Paul, and he promised him and he said in chapter 23, verse 11, take courage as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. While he was in Jerusalem, um, 40 Jews conspired to ambush Paul, to murder Paul. Um, those who claimed to be so zealous for the law, in a moment, were willing to transgress the law. So they made a precatory vow. They determined not to eat or drink anything until they killed him, all to no avail. Because whether it be 40 or 40,000, it will not work because it cannot work. Why can it not work? God said, you will testify of me in Rome. And by way of God's providence, Paul's nephew hears about the plot. He reports it to the tribune there in Jerusalem. The ambush is ceased. It cannot happen. And then by the cover of night... Um, Paul is escorted down to Caesarea. We, it's north of Jerusalem, but anytime you leave Jerusalem, you say you go down. So it doesn't matter if you're going north, south, east, or west. You're, you're departing. You're going down from Jerusalem. So he goes down to Caesarea by the cover of night with an escort of 470 mighty men. Application. Point of application. Because God alone, beloved holds the keys to life and death. Jesus alone holds the keys to death and Hades. Um, until God is done with you, his people, you are indestructible. Amen. Nothing can thwart God's plan for you in this life. His will will be done. And you can rest in that. We, we can be encouraged 
by that fact. His plan for you will not fail. It cannot fail. As you moms are living out gospel truth, raising your children in your home, God's will is being done, and you are doing God's will. That's a very precious, very important ministry that you all have in your homes and in your neighborhoods, bearing witness of Jesus Christ um, where you work. And though there may be difficult terrain along the way, and though it may create a fight for faith, his will is being done in and through your life. Paul has faced some rough terrain. And God's will is being done. Now, chapters 21, verse 17, through chapter 24, verse 25, covers a period of 12 days, okay? 12 days. 12 days prior to the scene wherein now a riot broke out in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem. And before that same mob, Paul was granted the opportunity to give testimony about himself, and therefore testifying of Christ. He sits before the Sanhedrin. By, you know, that was a, a very formal um, kind of hearing that took place there. And then um, escorted to Caesarea, which was the military headquarters for Rome um, in, in that part of the world. So here, as we approach Entering into chapter 24, Paul has arrived in Caesarea. He's guarded now in Herod's Praetorium, um, the residence of one Felix. Okay, that's where we've been here now. We're in Caesarea. Now, think about this. Claudius Lysias was the commander of Fort Antonia back in Jerusalem. Remember, Paul was taken into protective custody by the tribune and a force of Roman soldiers sparing him from the Jews who wanted him dead. So he was under Felix, and Felix now, he's the governor of this region. He's the governor of Judea. So you can imagine Claudius um, up in Jerusalem um, saying to himself, man, am I glad that is over, this Apostle Paul character, right? So here you have on one hand Paul, who is a Jew, and is also a Roman citizen. On the other hand, you have hostile Jews that want him dead. And they're applying pressure. As they did on Lysias, they applied pressure there. Now they're going to apply pressure on this one, Felix. And remember, this is the kind of pressure that caused Pilate to crumble. Same thing goes on here. Remember, what did Pilate say about Jesus? I find no fault in the man. I find no fault in this Jesus. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, they began to accuse Jesus saying, we found this man misleading our nation. Now listen to this. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us, forbidding us, to give tribute to Caesar. Bunch of liars. The last thing they wanted to do was to give tribute to Caesar. They hated Caesar. They hated imperial Rome. Yet they said, Jesus is keeping us from honoring Caesar. And he himself claims to be the Christ, a king. And at that point, Pilate began to crumble. He asked, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. You remember this? If you release him, they said, you're not Caesar's friend, Pilate. Okay, so here now, the Jews, these unbelieving Jews who hate the way, they hate Christ, they hate his apostle, they hire a power attorney, and they play the same hand with this Felix. Creating another dilemma for the governing, governing ruler. So here now, notice the prosecution. Verse 1. After five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders 
with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. Tertullus, Greek name, um, he was a, a Jew. He was a Jewish attorney. That means he, he was a Hellenistic Jew who had um, experience um, appearing before um, high levels of, of court, the delegation of imperial Rome. Just as today, there are certain attorneys, attorneys in, in life, who have power to appear before certain courts, whereas others do not. So this is a power attorney. This Tertullus, the Jews hire the man. Notice verse 2, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have, through you, O Felix, much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. <laughs> a bit, just a bit of nauseating flattery, right? These Jews to this Felix. Now, Felix did have this going for him. Now, he did indeed... Um, stop the rebellion of, of those 4,000 assassins headed by that Egyptian imposter, that imposter, remember? And when, when Paul was down in Jerusalem, they actually thought he was that imposter who had returned once again. Now, history tells us that this um, Egyptian who claimed to be a prophet had these 4,000 assassins and they camped on the Mount of Olives and they threatened that the walls of Jerusalem will fall just as they did in Jericho. Well, that got the attention of Rome and they slaughtered the majority of those men, those assassins, and this Egyptian imposter fled. So when, when Paul shows up in Rome, they thought Paul was that man until they heard him speak very polished Greek. Do you remember? He says, oh, you speak Greek. Oh, you speak good Greek, right? So you, you can't be that imposter. Nevertheless, Felix had that as credit to himself for stopping those assassins in, in, in creating um, this peaceful scenario. So Tertullus, he does take some truth. He embellishes just a bit in order to flatter Felix, hoping that they'll, he'll buy the hype of their presentation against Paul. And let me pause for a reminder, beloved. One of the double-edged swords of ruin for the church of Jesus Christ is flattery and gossip. Okay, flattery is saying something complimentary to someone's face that you would never say behind their back because you don't mean it. So you flatter someone in, in order to gain something for yourself. Gossip, on the other hand, is saying something behind one's back, negative words that you would never say to their face because you're a coward. That's the double-edged sword of ruin for the church. You know, the psalmist cried out, didn't he? We read this morning in Psalm 12, saying, Help, Lord, help, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May it never be so in the church. Scripture speaks of the gossip, the one who loves to gossip. Proverbs 20, verse 19, we read that a gossip betrays a confidence. The NIV puts it like this. So avoid a man who talks too much. You ever met that guy? He lacks wisdom, but he's always got something to say. He's always critical about the church. He always has an opinion. Beware. So here then, Tertullus flatters, and he wants to paint Paul um, as a, a socio-political threat. That's what he's after here. That he's guilty of civil rebellion. This is what they blamed our Lord of. Verse 4. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest 
and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of this sect, of this sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. Okay, three charges laid up here against the apostle. First, he's accused of being a, a political menace. The word is loimos, a plague, a, a pest as in pestilence. So Tertullus says, he's a deadly disease, dear governor. He's a deadly disease for this empire. That's the first charge. The second is that he's a ringleader. That's a quasi-military term, a kind of guerrilla warfare leader. So watch out, Felix. And then thirdly, um, he even tried to desecrate the temple. He's a religious heretic. Now question. Rome did not care about a Jew defiling the temple. They couldn't have cared less about that. So why do they bring it up? Well, remember this. They're guilty of a riot breaking out back in Jerusalem, and certainly Lysias passed on word that these Jews created this riot, so they want to put the blame on Paul, saying he tried to desecrate the temple, so we really had no choice other than to riot. That's, that's the scene. So it's a, very, it's a carefully constructed speech to present Paul as a threat to, to Pax Romana, to the peace of Rome. So verse 6, we arrested him. In the NASB, this part here we see in brackets. Now, um, we wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And then here the Jews, in verse 9, also joined the attack, asserting that these things were so. Then comes the defense. There's, your pers- there's the persecution. There's the, the, the prosecuting attorney. Here's the defense, verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice, once again, Paul is very courteous to this governing authoritative figure, but he speaks without flattery. No attempt to, to, to butter the guy up. He, he respects and he acknowledges Felix as the sitting judge over Judea at this point in time for many years. Friends, that's an absolute fact. So he acknowledges the man. He shows respect. We learned that principle a couple weeks ago. Amen. As Christians... We must respect and honor those who are in positions of authority over us because there is no governing authority who has not been placed there by God himself. Romans chapter 12, or 13. Romans 13. So Paul is is cheerful. Why would he be cheerful? I mean, this guy's been through the ringer. Well, he's cheerful because he's innocent of the charges. And if you're innocent of the charges, and you realize God is in control, you can proceed cheerfully. Amen. Verse 11. Since you can take note of the, f- of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Okay, now let's understand what's going on here. Paul originally is accused of not being Jewish. The Jews are accusing him of teaching other Jews to forsake Moses, the sign of the covenant. So right away, he defends his Jewishness. Notice, I was worshiping in Jerusalem, which is another way of saying, I am a Jew who holds to the same scriptures as they do. 
And then in verses 12 and 13, Paul says, you know, they make these charges against me. I deny these charges. Um, There are no witnesses to verify this. I mean, this is just 12 days ago. Where are the witnesses? Look at verse 19. Where are the Jews from Asia? They're the ones who started this whole thing. Where are they? Paul knows the law. Shouldn't these witnesses be present? So denying now that that he's a political menace, he affirms, notice, he affirms that he is a Jew who is a Christian. One who is of the what? The way. The way. In the first century, that meant Christianity. The way. So they're accusing him of of telling Jews to forsake Moses, just forsake Judaism altogether. But notice, he doesn't completely say, I am a Jew no different from them. Notice, I am a Jew and I confess. Now we're going to get into some theology here, okay? I am a Jew and I confess. Verse 14, I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, okay? Uh, These Jews call it a sect. I I admit, according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. What is he saying here? He's saying this. They hold to the scripture as do I, except I believe in the fulfillment of those scriptures. That is the Old Testament. Fulfilled by the one who is the, the, the way. So Paul, you see, by grace, understands the scriptures. You sit here this morning, and how is it that you understand the scriptures, beloved? By grace, through faith, which is a a gift, So Paul, by grace, understands the scriptures and the power of God. These Jews, these accusers, do not. They do not. You remember what Jesus said to the Sadducees? One day he said this, the reason you are mistaken is because you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. He said to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, He said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, the way. This is why Paul said in Romans 2 verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. A Jew is one what? inwardly, the the residing presence of the one who is the way, the way. The source and substance of covenant faithfulness is Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God, the source and substance of salvation, the source and substance, my friend, of true worship. The source and substance of true worship. Now, remember this, the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well. Remember the woman from Samaria at the well at high noon one day? Jesus is there, and she says to him this. Look at it, John 4, on the screen. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, on this mountain, And you people say, this is her speaking to Jesus, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Woman, Jesus said, verse 21, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Okay, now remember, Jerusalem was the only place where the Jews could lawfully offer sacrifices of worship to Yahweh. Jesus, the way, 
Jesus, who is the way, the source and substance of the hour, that is the hour of worship, who says is now, stands there and declares this fact. So, question, theological consideration. If Jesus back then declared that Jerusalem is right now, that is back then, no longer the place for centralized worship, would it not be a grave theological error to believe that Jerusalem at some point in time yet future will once again be the place of centralized worship? Contradicting the very words of Christ who is the way and who is the now. Christ alone is the way to the Father. Christ alone is the way of acceptable worship of the Father. He is the way of deliverance from sin and bondage. Jesus is the way out of sin and bondage. He himself is the exodus. Jesus is the way. He's the only way to deal with sin. He is the way to the promised land. He is the one we follow, children, through this wilderness experience. Amen. Little pilgrims progressing towards what? The celestial city. <laughs> it's only been 12 hours. We watched Pilgrim's Progress last night together. Jesus is the way of resurrection life, beloved. Spiritual and physical. Jesus also said this in John chapter 5, verse 25. Look at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. And now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the already and the not yet. The already spiritual Resurrection, that's regeneration. If you're a Christian, you've already experienced that resurrection. And you have yet to experience the physical resurrection, but you will. Because you've been resurrected the first time, you'll be spiritually, you'll be resurrected the second time physically. Glory. Amen. Jesus, the hour. Jesus, friends, he is the way that our prayers are heard, received, and answered. It's in his name we pray. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, that is according to his will, he will do it. Isn't that a relief? You know, I've had the privilege of visiting Israel twice. You know, to walk these streets and to walk this land where the most of redemptive history has taken place, you visit these incredible places. One of the places you typically visit is in Jerusalem, known as the Western Wall. It's the foundation wall of the Herodian temple that God destroyed in 70 AD. And I've heard it referred to by Orthodox Jews as the very ear of God. So I'm standing there one day, it was actually with my son, and this Orthodox Jew um, approaches me, and he offers to pray for me as, as though it's some kind of special blessing that he would pray for me. And I think ultimately, he was trying to get me in the little trinket shop, I'm off, off to the side. So, you know, he comes up in a very pious voice, you know, he speaks with somewhat of a whisper and, and offers to pray for me. And, and I respectfully said, no, thank you. All the while I'm thinking, you don't even have access to God. I do. The way. The only way. Yahweh's Messiah. You reject Messiah, you have no access to Yahweh. This wall is dead stone. It's not the ear of God. It's dead stone. If you've ever been there, you know that people scribble little prayers 
on a piece of paper and they stick it in the cracks of the wall. You know what that is? Superstitious nonsense. I, Christians buy into this to this day. I've heard Christians say, my friend is on a trip to Jerusalem and I gave him a prayer note to stick in the wall. <sighs> Great. I can save you some time. <laughs> you can save yourself some time. If you're, if, if you're of the way and Christ indwells you, you have bold access to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, our great high priest, and only by way of our great high priest are we enabled, verse 16, Hebrews 4, to draw near with confidence to the what? The throne of God, not a dead stone wall. The throne of Almighty God through the one who is the way so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of what? Need. You remember in our film last night, children, when Pilgrim was in need, he called for what? Say it. Help. Help. I say help all the time to the Lord. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem and stand before the, a dead stone wall and say help. I have access to the throne of the king through the one who's the way. You know, first century Christians, the apostle Paul, they did not refer to themselves as ex-Jews or former Jews, but indeed completed Jews. Completed Jews viewing the entire Old Testament as pointing forward and finding its fulfillment in Christ alone, the one who is the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God. Which ones? All the promises. Which promises? All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him, Christ Jesus, who is the way. So the way, the gospel, was not some new competing system with Judaism, as they referred to it, a sect, but instead was a completing system. Not a competing system, a completing system. It's been said, the church is to Israel what the butterfly is to the caterpillar. That's God's redemptive plan, fulfilled in Christ. There are not a two people of God. There's a one people of God. In Christ, in Christ alone. This is what the man's preaching. He's defending his Jewishness, ethnicity that is, claiming to be of the way, the one who fulfills it all. You see this? We want to put dispensationalism to rest if you are a dispensational believer. Yes, you're a Christian and we're brothers and sisters, but you've got to read the Bible as it is laid out. Redemptive history. Jesus is the true Israel of God. He fulfills it all, all the promises of God. It's not a competing system, but again, a completing system. Friends, there is no way in the world to understand or make sense of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's, there's no way to make sense of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. There's no way to make sense of the exodus of those people out of that land through the wilderness, and they followed the rock in the wilderness that water burst forth from, and that rock was Christ. There's no way to understand the promised land without Christ, who unfolds the mystery of it all. The Old Testament was a mystery. In the New, it's revealed. It's the mystery, Paul says, revealed in Christ Jesus, who is the way. Amen. Two amens. <laughs> Verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves... 
that there shall certainly be resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. And now we see his further defense in verses 17 to 21, concluding, notice, notice, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Why an emphasis on the resurrection? This is what these men believed in because the Old Testament teaches about a resurrection. Paul declares, I'm preaching the fulfillment of the resurrection, the one who is the the way. Because the resurrection validates everything Jesus ever said and did. Without the resurrection, I would tear this Bible up, throw it away, and I'd leave this pulpit and never return again. Because we of all people would be absolute fools for sitting here this morning had Jesus not been raised from the dead. The resurrection says, Jesus, the way, is still alive. And not merely in memory, my friends. He is living. He's on the throne. He's glorified, ruling and reigning over the nations now. And he's not merely a living example to be followed. He is the resurrected, ascended King of kings and Lord of lords who was crucified, dead, buried, was raised the third day. I preach him, says Paul. Verse 22, but Felix, hmm, this is interesting, but Felix, having a more accurate knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Okay, so here Paul is in jail with with the freedom to have friends visit. Notice verse 23. In verses 24 to 27, as we move along the narrative now, we come to to the thrust in what I want us to see more than anything else. In verses 24 to 27, the script is flipped. As delegated civil authority, Felix, now stands before ultimate authority. The governor stands trial before the apostle. And here now, the result of the whole matter, from his arrest, from the riot that broke out, transported down to Caesarea, look at it, verse 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away. Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Now, a little bit about Drusilla. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa the first, you know, the Herod that was struck by an angel of God and eaten by worms back in chapter 12. Remember that one, kids? <laughs> Drusilla, that was her daddy. Okay? Now, historians verify that she was an incredibly beautiful woman. We would say drop dead gorgeous. And a Jewess. She was originally married to a king um, in Syria, but was persuaded by Felix to leave her husband and be married to him. So at the time, she was a raving beauty, all of about 20 years of age at this point, and Felix's third wife. Okay, which is to say, this whole situation was an ugly, immoral, illicit situation from the beginning, which makes sense of verse 24. Look at it. Paul spoke to them about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, 
which had sexual connotations then as it does now, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was frightened, alarmed. Friends, that is what the gospel does initially. That is what the gospel is supposed to do initially. It is meant to make us feel very uncomfortable. Very. You know, so many people just, they say this today, just preach the positive gospel, especially to guys like me. Just preach the positive gospel. Don't talk about coming judgment. It's so offensive. Yeah, that's the point. It's coming. Judgment's coming. And judgment's part of the gospel, my friends. It's the reason the gospel is so precious. We are saved. We've been delivered from the coming wrath of God, the just punishment of God. Therefore, the call is for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, our covering. The innocent one who bore the wrath in the place of many sinners. Not all sinners without exception, but many without distinction. Felix delays. Um, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Verse 26. Now notice this. At the same time, too. He was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. See, Felix knows, beloved, by Paul's own testimony, that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he had a very large very sizable gift for the church in Jerusalem. He heard Paul's testimony, so perhaps he's thinking, you know, since I'll allow him to have visitors in jail, some of these Christian fellow brothers of his will bring him money, and Paul can bribe his way out of prison, as many people did. So here you have a man who has, is characterized not only by um, you know, his illicit moves um, with Drusilla, but, but also he's characterized by greed. That's the account. That's the account. Felix, notice, became frightened. He hears the gospel, frightened, coming judgment, frightened. He's alarmed, sends him away. Let me ask a question. How few... Today, how few today in American evangelicalism ever go away frightened as they sit and listen to preaching? I think it to be very few. One pastor put it like this. The gospel today is so poorly preached in so many places with all the gimmicks and watered-down drivel that the non-elect don't know enough to reject it. Which is to say the gospel is so poorly presented, they just whip everybody up, they give some emotional story, you know, add Jesus to your life, oh, that gets you a ticket out of hell, and pray this prayer after me, and what do you have? The result, more often than not, false converts. Felix was gripped by the preaching of the apostle Paul. This is kind of like Herod and John the Baptist. Remember Herod? He he liked to hear John preach until the finger was pointing at his face. And he was alarmed. This is what happens, friends, to unbelievers in the face of truth. This is the danger. This is the potential. When they hear it, they know it. They know it to be true. Notitia. Notification. This is the truth. These are the facts. 
A census. Oh, I agree with it. It makes sense. Fiducia, go away. Embracing it by faith, go away. See, they, they sense the gravity, the gravity of it. They, they sense the power of the truth being preached, and they push it off. And although frightened like this man, he did not repent. And as far as history tells us, the records show he never repented. Tragic. Tragic. He was a victim of tomorrow. Putting it off. A victim of tomorrow. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Theologian um, Edward Young once said, procrastination is the thief of time. Procrastination is the thief of time. That tells us, friends, that the gospel also has a hardening effect. Hebrews 6 speaks of unbelievers who attach themselves to the covenant community of God, that is, they attach themselves to the people of God, i.e., the church of Jesus Christ. They experience gospel power. They taste of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they're regenerated by him. They taste of the Holy Spirit. They can be absolutely gripped by the truth, and yet they do not believe. I have preached to many people and I've shared the gospel with many people personally, individually, who will hear the gospel, they will well up, they get all emotional, and they've actually said this to me. I've never heard it put so clearly as that. It makes sense. And they say, but go away. Go away. Startled frightened. History is littered with corpses who said, I don't want to hear this. Go away. Let's not talk about things that are uncomfortable. Coming judgment. Just give me some sappy sentiment about this Jesus, that he loves me and has a plan for my life. That's not the gospel. He's got a plan, all right. So here, Paul faithfully preaches the gospel to Felix. Jesus stood by his side. You've testified about me in Jerusalem. You will testify about me in Rome. And while en route, he gets thrown in jail for two years right here. That's a long time for being faithful. So we say, wait a minute, cowboy, hold on, you who opened the sermon with the providence of God. This brother is faithful. He goes through all these trials, and you're telling me that providentially being faithful in declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to this crew, to those unbelieving Jews, and then to Felix, they throw him in jail? For two years, and on top of that, nobody's converted. Point of application. Paul's job was not to convert anyone. Your job is not to convert anyone. Paul's job was to be faithful to his calling. Our call is to be faithful to ours. Only he can convert. You're never, you've never converted a soul in your life, and nor have I. Paul never converted a soul. God the Holy Spirit alone converts souls. We sow, we water. Who brings about the harvest? The Holy Spirit. Ye must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus. This is a miracle from heaven. You must be born from above. Well, how does this happen? As the wind blows to and fro? You know, you don't know where it comes from. You have no idea where it goes. So is, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Everyone, said Jesus. Paul's faithful. He's thrown in jail. And what does this remind us of? Living this Christian life, 
pilgrimaging our way through with the message of eternal life, we're shown once again, this life is not fairy tale land. Not everything has a happy ending, amen. You don't live in a fairy tale land, friends. This is big boy football. This is real life. Paul was living big boy football, real life, and so do we. So be encouraged. Point of application. Just present it, leave it be. If you get a chance to water it, water it. Dump a bucket on it if you have to, or just sprinkle. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, of course. So Paul, remember, he was witnessing with a clear conscience, verse 16, which produced confidence in the gospel, that is, the one who is the way, and that confidence then produces courage to declare the whole gospel, coming judgment, righteousness, repentance, faith in Christ alone. The gospel has no gimmicks attached to it, friends. That's why we don't have smoke machines and and colored lighting back here for your pleasure. He doesn't withhold truth. We must not withhold truth when we give the gospel of Jesus Christ because God alone takes care of salvation. And again, the gospel does have a twofold effect. The same sun that waxes the melt also hardens the clay. His word will not return void. Some, it will harden. Others, it will soften. You don't know who. I don't know who. Just give it. Deliver it. Because God said this in Exodus 33 I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, Paul cites that text, Romans 9, verse 15 I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Some I will harden. And what if I harden them just to manifest my glory for your sake? Are you going to argue with that, says Paul? Never. The Lord's will will be done. So by by way of inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the residing presence of the Spirit, Paul knew very well salvation belongs to the Lord. Just give it. Just present it. You know, except for grace, and I'm closing up. You have Felix and Drusilla, this illicit love affair, this illicit marriage, adultery, divorce, remarriage, three times for Felix. Here's Drusilla um, living off of her beauty. Um, Here, um, except for grace, you and I are no different than Drusilla and Felix. Amen? Amen. Now, if you don't believe that about yourself, you don't understand the gospel. And you definitely don't understand yourself. That by the grace grace of God, we're no different than the Drusillas and the Felixes of this life, period. It is only by grace we understand the gospel that wrath is no longer upon us. If you're not a Christian, the wrath of God abides on you. John chapter 3, verse 18 and 36. It's on you now, right now. So there's a remedy if you're not a Christian here this morning. If you're a Christian, you have all that application. You can go home, meditate on it this afternoon. If you're not a Christian here, right now, within earshot of this message, there is a remedy for you because the wrath of God does abide on you at this present moment. And the only way of deliverance is faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Notitia. God demands absolute holy perfection. You're a sinner, you will die. You will be judged for your sin. Good news, God sent his son to do what you cannot do, and that is live a perfect, holy, righteous life. And then he laid his life down. No man takes my life. I have power to lay it down, the power to take it up again. And he bore God's wrath on the cross. Those who put their faith and trust in him shall be saved. So that's notitia. If you assent to that, a census, you agree with that, that's not enough. Repent and believe and embrace him by faith and you shall be saved from the just punishment that is due to you. 
Because by way of his death on the cross, he took this guilt and he took the sins of the many. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Many. The only one who can free you from the eternal weight of God's wrath is Christ alone who is the way to the Father, the way to eternal life, and the way of escape from God's wrath. Do not push him off. Do not say, go away. I'll call you when I have time. You may breathe your last this afternoon. Don't play. Repent and believe. And you'll come to understand that God's wrath has been fully satisfied in his son. And in place of the punishment you deserve, you get all of his righteousness placed upon your account so that when you do breathe your last, you will be absent from this body and you will be present with the Lord through the finished work of Christ who is the way and only way. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the testimony of the apostle Paul. We thank you that you assured him that you would always be with him through thick and thin, trial, trouble, tribulation. You were right at his side. And here as he will spend two years in prison, may we um, come to see more of the fruit of the life of this man who was one who was transformed by your son, the way, the truth, and the life, and sanctify us by way of the same truth for the glory of your name. Amen.